We are back with Evangelion interpreting scripture and life, and we find ourselves towards the end of Galatians chapter 4. We are almost in the home straight. In my estimations, it's difficult to overestimate the significance of Isaac's birth to Paul's arguments. Now, as I suggested in a previous podcast, it's not difficult to see how Isaac's story might form a natural parable of Jesus' story. After all, Isaac, like Jesus, was miraculously conceived. Isaac was described as his father's beloved son, as was Jesus. According to Genesis 22, verse 6, Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice, just as Jesus is reported in the Gospels to have carried the crossbeam of his own cross. The three-day journey that Abraham and Isaac took to Mount Moriah in some way parallels the three days between Jesus' death and resurrection. It wasn't until the second century, however, and a text called the Epistle of Barnabas, when an explicit connection was made between the two events, the binding of Isaac and the crucifixion of Jesus. The author of the Epistle of Barnabas may well have been a converted Jew, acquainted with the story of the binding of Isaac and his atonement theology, that's his theology of the cross and how it saves, suggests that Jesus somehow took the place of Isaac in the sacrifice. Later on, various church fathers made similar connections. Um, You see this in the work of Melito, of Sardis, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Clement, Origen and others. So having already made recourse to the birth of Abraham's sons in Galatians 3, 6-9, Paul returns to the issue in Galatians 4, 21-31. Only the parental emphasis this time is not on Abraham, but rather on the mothers of his first two sons, who Paul draws into a complex allegory of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. The passage reads like this, Galatians 4, from 21 to the end of chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren... We are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, I'm not going to attempt to unstitch too many of the very difficult exegetical details in this text, but hopefully I'll illuminate enough of it so that you can see how it fits into the broader argument. The question in Galatians 4.21 
where Paul asks, do you want to be, uh, for those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's one of those places in the letter which suggests that Gentiles had not yet gone the whole hog into becoming proselytes, that is, converts to Judaism. Because he says to you who want to be under the law, suggesting that perhaps at least some of them had not fully submitted to the law as yet. He addresses those desiring to be under the law. Galatians 4.22 opens up with this common phrase, for it has been written. Now, usually that phrase introduces a scriptural citation, but here it only introduces a key aspect of the biblical narrative without reflection on a particular text. For it is written, Paul writes, that Abraham had two sons. Now, of course, we know from Genesis that Abraham had more than two sons, but only two are in focus here as Paul sets up his story. For the point Paul is about to argue, the social status of the mothers of Abraham's first two sons are what is significant. Abraham had a son with his wife's slave girl, Hagar. We know this son to be called Ishmael, although Ishmael is never mentioned in Galatians or indeed anywhere in the New Testament. He also eventually had a son with his wife, Sarah, who they named Isaac. Now, it's crucial for the argument that we understand and recall that Hagar was a slave and Sarah was free. Their status ties into the second motif signifying justification in Galatians, that is, freedom emerging from slavery. Now, there are certain ideas which Paul clearly sees as directly connected. In 4.23, we see an example of this. Ishmael was born both of the slave woman or bond woman according to the flesh. For Paul, slavery and flesh go hand in hand. Now, flesh has a sort of interesting semantic history in Paul's letters. It means everything from the literal flesh, the stuff the body is made of, to a way of talking about the frail and corruptible element of the human identity. Perhaps both come into play here for a slave literally had no control over their actual flesh. Their flesh belonged to their master. And in the same way, the decision for Abraham to impregnate Hagar came from Abraham and Sarah's weakness and their compromise. Whatever Paul means precisely here, the key contrast is with the birth of Isaac. He's born free and the result of a promise. And again, for Paul, freedom and promise go hand in hand. Now, the contrast itself has to be read carefully according to Paul's instructions. As he said at the beginning of verse 24, Paul's engaging in an allegory. An allegory is like an illustration or a parable. Now, quite clearly, Hagar and Sarah are not literally covenants, but they represent covenants in Paul's parable. Hagar is essentially a metaphor for the law of Moses, hence the reference to Mount Sinai in verse 25. Now we know from Genesis 26.18 that Ishmael is said to have settled in Arabia. That's probably why Paul references uh, Mount Sinai being in Arabia. However, as the end of verse 24 suggests, Hagar's children were being born into slavery. And the birth of Hagar's children here is the metaphor for the conversion of believing Jews who insist on Gentiles becoming Jews. And not only does Hagar stand for Mount Sinai, but she's also said to correspond to the present Jerusalem. 
Now, the Greek word translated correspond here is the word sustokeo. Now, the reason I bring it up is that it ought to remind you of that term stokeia from about two podcasts ago. Remember, I suggested that stoicheia represents the basic elements of the physical universe, and that the word literally means standing in a line or in the sequence. Well, the verb sustokeo means to stand in the same line. Paul's point is that those people who were influencing the Gentiles in Galatia to be circumcised, and those Gentiles who succumb to it, have chosen to stand in the wrong line and be influenced by the present Jerusalem. Sarah is reflected in what Paul calls the Jerusalem above, or in some translations, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, in verse 25. Sarah's reflected in that heavenly Jerusalem. And the heavenly Jerusalem has a history within the Jewish apocalyptic tradition. Jewish apocalyptic refers to those texts which discuss in very dramatic metaphorical language how the plans of God are being revealed. And in those texts, in many of those texts, there were prophecies about how Jerusalem would one day ultimately be restored. There are even passages in the Hebrew Bible which say similar things. The the closing section of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48, uh, contains an elaborate retelling of how the temple would be restored in the restored Jerusalem. And of course, you may remember in Revelation 21-2, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, dressed as a bride prepared for her groom. Well, the ideas of a restored Jerusalem actually developed into this hope of some kind of a new Jerusalem. And in Paul's mind in Galatians 4-26, those with faith in Christ are the children of this new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is our mother. Now, it may well be the case that Paul is actually thinking of the Jerusalem church here, that the Jerusalem church represents the earthly Jerusalem, and maybe those people who are trying to influence the Galatian Gentiles to be circumcised somehow consider themselves to be representatives of the Jerusalem church. Either way, the point seems clear. Justification on the basis of faith in Christ is the equivalent of being born from the heavenly Jerusalem and therefore being the true people of God. To be born of the earthly Jerusalem is to be born into slavery under law, which Paul has already argued has a limited role, which culminated in the coming of Christ. In the remaining passages, Paul cites two texts from the Hebrew Bible. Now, the first of these is a citation from Isaiah 54 verse 1 in Galatians 4.27, and it's fraught with many difficulties, most of which I won't attempt to go into now. The most glaring difficulty in um, Paul's point we'll come to in a moment. The overall point that the citation from Isaiah 54.1 makes, however, in my view, is absolutely crucial. Not least of all because it ties the Abraham argument of Galatians 3 and 4 to the Abraham argument of Romans 4, a point that I think is very important, but what I think the uh, where I think the um, scholarship on Galatians and Romans has been a bit slow on the uptake. This is what the Isaiah 54 1 citation reads um, as it is in Galatians 4.27. Rejoice, O barren one, you who bear no children. Burst into song and shout out, you who enjoy no labour pains. For the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. 
The obvious difficulty that I mentioned earlier is that Paul clearly intends the barren woman to correspond with Sarah. However, the text says that the barren woman's children will outnumber the married woman. Now, of course, in the Genesis story, the barren woman is Sarah, but she's also the married woman. It's Hagar who's single. Well, what seems apparent and what has been argued uh, very nicely, in fact, by a scholar called Karen Jobes, is that Paul is taking on a motif that Isaiah himself takes on from the prophetic tradition, namely that barrenness is a metaphor for death. In other words, when a barren woman gives birth, it symbolizes divine life-making power. This is already apparent earlier on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 26 from verses 17 through 19, where the prophet writes, like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near her time, so we, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed, but we gave birth only to wind. We have won no victories on earth, and no one is born to inhabit the world. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. Now, of course, the passage that Paul actually quotes from Isaiah 54 verse 1 follows a very famous passage in Christian history. It's the last of Isaiah's servant songs, the famous pierced servant of Isaiah 53. Now, the servant in that song is said to have been crushed and then later to see the fruit of his work. And then in Isaiah 54 verse 1 comes Isaiah's birth from the barren woman motif. When Paul takes on verse 1 of Isaiah 54, it's quite clear he's taking on the context as well. He's drawing in those closing passages of Isaiah 53, which talk about the servant being crushed to death, but then seeing the light of day. I think what Paul's doing here is rather clever. He's using the birth from a barren woman narrative and this crushed servant who will later see the light of day narrative to suggest that Isaiah 54 verse 1 ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So initially it describes the birth of Isaac from Sarah, but ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. It's on the basis of the risen Christ that the barren woman has many children. We know that because of how Paul already talked about justification. It's a movement from death to life. Now, as we've already argued, the explicit link between the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of Isaac doesn't occur until Romans 4. However, it originates right here in Galatians 4. That's why in Galatians 4.28, Paul turns directly to the birth of Isaac as a framework for recognizing people who were justified by faith in Christ. We are children of the promise according to Isaac, he writes, because just as Isaac was born because Abraham believed God, the people of God are born because of their faith in the risen Christ. And then in 429 comes the crunch verse, where such birth is described as birth according to the Spirit. This, of course, comports with what I've said about justification all along. 
that justification is about being made alive by the risen power of Christ that's conveyed into the believer by the Spirit. The citation of Genesis 21.10 in Galatians 4.30 then is the practical conclusion. It probably draws upon the rabbinic tendency to assume that somehow Ishmael persecuted Isaac. There's no evidence in Genesis that Ishmael ever persecuted Isaac. We do read in Genesis 21 verse 9 uh, where Sarah's son is said to be playing with Hagar's son. And there are many who read the word for play in that verse as a euphemism for provoke. So Isaac, um, Ishmael wasn't playing with Isaac, but somehow was provoking him. Now, indeed, it is possible that there was general hostility towards Ishmael in some strands of Jewish thought. Indeed, in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, known as the War Scroll, the sons of light are said to fight a cosmic war against the sons of Ishmael. However, once more, there can be little ambiguity about Paul's intentions. In Genesis 21.10, Abraham was told to drive away Hagar and her son because slaves and her children had no inheritance rights. In the same way, Paul is urging the Galatian Gentiles to drive away those false teachers who are leading them astray, for they too will have no share in the inheritance. This then is confirmed in verse 31. Those who were justified by faith in Christ are sons of Sarah. Now, it's possible that this unit actually ends in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul continues this contrast of slavery and freedom. But we'll actually get to that next time. For now, we may say the following. Paul's already identified the blessing of Abraham with the promise of spirit in Galatians 3.14. Abraham's blessing was, of course, Isaac whom he received because he had believed in God's promise. It's now clear why this is called the promise of spirit. For Isaac was, as we've seen in Galatians 4, born according to spirit, which is Paul's way of saying that he was brought from death to life. Again, as we've argued, that this is a a common trope in Jewish thought, the idea that the spirit is the origin of life. And it reaches back to Genesis 2 verse 7, where... God formed the man from dust and blew into his nostrils the spirit of life, such that he became a living soul. Moreover, in contrast, Paul actually recites Genesis 2-7 in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 to signal the notion that Jesus became a life-giving spirit, further confirming the dynamics of justification in Pauline thought. The Pauline scholar Sam K. Williams framed his version of the argument of Galatians 3 and 4 by suggesting that the spirit births children for Abraham, a view with which I'm in strong overall agreement. The true children of Abraham are those with faith in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus are the people of God because Abraham himself trusted God. And we are the family of God because we have that shared gene of trust in God. Trusting in God is our identity. We are, by definition, God-trusters. It's this and not some perceived sense of superior religiosity or spirituality that marks believers off as the people of God. That our lives ought to be markedly different from the unbelievers. 
has nothing to do with our lives being hedged in or more comfortable or less traumatic, less arduous or trial-free. Our common trust in the God of Israel means that we don't wage war the way that the world does, nor do we react as the unbelievers do or crave what they crave. Whether in strength or weakness, we are God-trusters, reliant upon his goodness, energized by his spirit and devoted to his will. That's what it means to be children of the promise, to be born of the Spirit according to the birth of Isaac. And so for all of you who believe in Jesus Christ, carry your God-truster identity into every arena that matters to you.